0: Welcome to Dressed, the History
1: of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Okay, this is where we are, friends, today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think Cass's laugh just said it all. Um, Today, the day that this episode is going to air is... November 3rd, 2020, which is also known as Election Day. And of course, as we all already know within the U.S., this is one of the most heated elections of the 21st century. And no matter where you stand on many of these issues that are at stake in this election and this election season, I do think that there's one thing that we can all definitely agree on, and that's we're exhausted. We are exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 2020 has, it, it is it's just not fun, right? And, and this whole political aspect of 2020 just, just adding in a whole other layer on the top of the pandemic. I mean, politics don't really ever feel fun per se, but I would argue that they can be invigorating, inspiring, and sometimes, of course, always transformational.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we certainly do not want to up your dose, dress listeners, of political rhetoric at this moment (laughs) when it is likely that the results of the election won't even be finalized for a few more weeks, which is just crazy. Um, But we did want to address this moment and hopefully bring a little ray of sunshine and playfulness to the 2020 election season by way of buttons.
0: Yes, buttons. So for any of our listeners, out there who may have been clamoring for an episode on buttons for the last three seasons of Dressed, we have heard you. We have received so many requests, um, so those are noted. But I'm afraid today's episode is going to be a little bit of a twist on the button. We are not discussing buttons as fasteners, but rather buttons as a canvas for conveying a message.
2: Yes,
1: because today we are joined by button experts, collectors extraordinaire Kristen Carter and Ted Hake, to discuss their brand new book, Button Power, 125 Years of Saying It with Buttons, which is chock full of some of the most fun, joyful, and poignant buttons which have been produced over the course of more than a century. You know, the kind you might decide to pin to your jean jacket or your backpack supporting your favorite band or cause. These are the type of buttons we're talking about today.
0: Yes. Or political candidate, which we will delve into, of course, because Cass, the history of the use of the button in the realm of politics is really quite fascinating.
1: And that is why we are so pleased to welcome Kristen and Ted to the podcast on Election
0: Day. Thank you both so much for joining us. So, Kristen and Ted, thank you, both of you, for being here with us today. I'm I'm super excited um, to talk to you about your fascinating book, Button Power, 125 Years of Saying with Buttons. Um, It was only released just last month, and it was published by Princeton Architectural Press, and it is super, duper fascinating. I, I had a blast reading it, and actually, I've gone back to it a few times since then, um, just to look at all the buttons and all the pictures, because you can't take it all in almost in one sitting. So congratulations on the book being released.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for having us here today.
0: Yeah, of course. So I don't even really know where to start because, like I said, this is such a fun book and I learned so much while I was reading it as well on a whole host of different topics. But before we get to that, I just, I'm hoping maybe on the most basic level, you could tell our listeners how are using this word button. And if you wouldn't mind also going into some of the early history of both badges and buttons, like who was wearing them and why?
3: Well, going way back to like the etymology of the word button, it's uh, a button is something that just like sticks out. So it's really a very general term. So basically the lineage comes from clothing buttons. So that's why we call them buttons over here. And like in England, they'll call them badges. Wearable insignias have like a different lineage there than they do here because buttons were invented in the United States. So this is what Ted and I always talk about. Like, what is a button? You know, based on the patent for the button, it has like a pin in the back. It has like a celluloid cover, printed material and a shell and a pin, you know, the pin. That's what we're talking about when we talk about buttons. Although there are exceptions, like there are buttons that don't have the celluloid cover. They're printed straight onto the metal of the button. So those are called litho buttons.
2: They're not necessarily round either. They do come in, in shapes nowadays, although in their early days, That really would have been something that would have freaked people out to see a non-round button, you know, back in 1896 or so when they started.
0: We talk a lot on the show about how the history of fashion and dress is inextricably tied up in the evolution of technology. And you guys have touched on this very briefly in what you just said. The button is no exception because this type of pin back button, um, which you guys are covering in your book, like you said, only emerged in 1896. And and that was after this whole host of technological innovations to get it to that celluloid cover with the pin back. Would you tell us a little bit about that technical evolution of the button? I had never given this any thought and and I found it very, very interesting.
2: Well, we kind of date it back to George Washington in, in terms of the most immediate ancestry, I guess. And at his inauguration, uh, he wore brass clothing buttons on his jacket. And shortly after that, out in the colonies, folks started making these brass buttons and they'd have beautiful, uh, really hand engraved eagles on them. And they'd say things like, long live the president, or they'd have his initials GW. And somehow that became the cottage industry, north, south, all along the East Coast. So that's our heritage. At that point, we had a one-party system. So so in terms of wearing things to, to show a purpose to some extent, that really came along about 1824.
0: And this is part of the reason why several months ago, when it came to my attention that your book was going to be released in the fall, was this connection of the button's history to politics. And I I was like, oh, this would be the perfect episode for the week of the election. Um, so, you know, what I really didn't know, though, is just how deep this history goes. I mean, it it goes all the way back, and you, to write in your book that, quote, the earliest major use of the pinback button was in the world of politics. So let's get into this. Obviously, we have George Washington in the, obviously, 18th century. But now, specifically in terms of the pinback button, can you tell us a little bit about how it played out in the presidential election between William McKinley and William Jennings Bryan in 1896?
2: I've dealt in presidential campaign items all my life, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a big button fan. Uh, We have the earliest dated button in our book. It's from the end of May, 1896, and Whitehead and Hogue, which had been in business making what were known as ribbon badges, suddenly they were able to produce this thing called a a pinback button. And we don't even know exactly when. They may have made McKinley buttons even prior to the convention, but at any rate, shortly after, they certainly did. And the amazing thing is, uh, a month later, Brian comes along, gets nominated after he gave his famous cross of gold speech. But Whitehead and Hogue was ready to go. And and they created well over a thousand designs uh, for each candidate and all within the space of June to November. (laughs) And on top of that, they were making advertising buttons because the advertisers hopped on the political bandwagon.
0: That's amazing. What is it about buttons that you feel is so effective in terms of political campaigns? Because not only have the candidates themselves used them, but also times, and and these are some of the most compelling buttons that I found in your book, they were actually for causes, not necessarily candidates. So what about the button makes them so like poignant in conveying a message?
3: I -hmm. think that they're, they're very accessible. They're like, often given for free. And, you know, it, it's a real grassroots thing, like, you're literally wearing these things, like you're standing behind them. And it's being part of something larger, you know, so I think with the political campaigns, it's like, this is who I support, I'm opening myself to conversation. And also, I'm just letting you know, I'm just letting you know where I'm standing right now. And then with the cause thing that you can, I think cause buttons kind of tend to be more like, this is what is affecting me or this is what I really care about specifically. So those can be some really sweet, uh, heartfelt designs, you know, and it's basically made by an organization that's trying to build community. So they have to design it and they have to, you know, it's very intentional.
0: I think at one point you kind of compare buttons to being like the memes of history. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. You're just wearing it instead of having it on your phone or your computer.
3: Yeah, and they last a little longer too. But but they don't last forever. I mean, they they physically last for, forever or for a long time, but um, you know, with memes they just kind of like come and go, but this is like something you'll wear for a month or whatever.
0: Mhm. So on this topic of causes, I'm hoping that both of you might tell us a little bit about some of your favorite buttons created to promote social change, because it seems like there is no social justice topic that has been left untouched by the button. I mean, we have race and labor relations, you know, freedom of speech, gay rights, women's rights, even like international relations, references to international incidents. I'm hoping you both might pick a couple and tell us some of your favorites.
2: I guess one of mine is the uh, uh, free speech movement button, which came out in the fall of 64 at Berkeley, California, when there was a a demonstration in support of free speech when the dean tried to say, you've got to keep all of that off campus. The students basically rebelled. And shortly, within days, there was an FSM free speech movement button. It doesn't look like much, just white letters on a blue background, but it's certainly a harbinger of, of everything that came. And even topping that, uh, from a year earlier, uh, the Civil Rights March in Washington with Dr. Martin Luther King wearing the the button on his lapel, that really put the button in front of the world that day. And some of the civil rights buttons are, they're certainly identifiers, but they get a little more aggressive uh, when it's a cause button. They can be sweet, but they can also, you know, almost be used as weapons.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the ones that hit me like a ton of bricks was an NAACP button from 1937 that just says "Stop Lynching." I mean, that just cuts. Oh, that's
2: iconic! Yeah,
0: right to the point, and and you can't miss the message there. It's it's, it's very powerful.
3: And looking back to that, you're just like you had to wear buttons that say to stop lynching. It just seems like I don't know it. <laughs> Seems like such a no-brainer that you wouldn't even need a button, you know? Right. But at least now, looking
0: back. (laughs) Right, right. Do you have any particular favorites, Kristen, for the cause buttons?
3: Yeah, there's one, and it's in the book. It's a Cesar Chavez button that says, Boycott Chiquita. (laughs) And I really like it because, you know, there's the farm workers, the right to organize. And we have a picture of him right next to the button, wearing that button. Cesar Chavez, and um, I really like that one. In part, it is very much a grassroots design. It's like not a professional drawing of a banana. I also, like for the Button Museum, the person who drew that reached out to me and told me the whole story about how Chavez asked him to draw it. His parents had a, or his brother had a print shop. And so he's like, I want these buttons and I want you to draw. But he was in 11th grade. And so Ah. I I like that I know the backstory to that one. And it's such a sweet button. And the fact that, you know, he was actually asked to do it by Chavez himself. You know, it's very, I like that.
0: Yeah. And and one of the things I was really impressed because you guys do so much research and I think we're going to touch on that aspect of of the book as well here in a little bit. But Ted, going back to what you were talking about, the civil rights buttons, actually one of my favorite photos in the book um, is actually a group of Black Panthers demonstrating outside of a courthouse in New York City in 1969. And they're all dressed in more or less identical outfits they have on black leather jackets. And of course, they're iconic black braids. And several of them have buttons on their braids. And so, this kind of begs the question, and I think maybe Kristen, you want to speak to this. You know, when we see buttons worn, does the message sometimes dictate the manner in which they're incorporated into one's dress? Because it's very specifically that the Black Panthers are wearing them on their beret.
3: Yeah, I mean, and it's um I mean they're they're all wearing leather jackets, and it's hard to wear buttons on leather true, jackets. True, true, true. <laughs> so but um I mean. That's just like you can't even talk with them without seeing their buttons, you know, which is like really in the forefront, you know, and I'm sure there's like people wore buttons on hats before, you know, and I think it's just such a, it's like even more intimate somehow than like on your body. So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure, like, what it, where they're worn and what that means exactly. But um, I know that I see people, like, wearing them on their pants and wearing them on their backpack. And I think, um, you know, people are choosing the place where they, um, it, it says something about them. Like, I'm not just putting this on my lapel. I'm, like, putting it here because... This is where I want people to see it, you
0: know. <laughs> I'm going to I'm so. going to make you look at this.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. Um
0: we're going to take a very brief sponsor break, but when we return, I'm hoping we can turn our attention away from politics specifically and look at some of the other myriad of thematic uses of the button that are featured in your book. Welcome back. So before we go a little bit deeper into the buttons themselves, I would like to turn the attention to the two of you for a moment. How did you first come to be involved with buttons? What have your career trajectories kind of been up until this point? And how did the two of you come to start working together?
2: You know, I started collecting coins when I was uh, about seven, eight years old in York, Pennsylvania. And uh, I did most of that uh, during my childhood until I had all my albums filled up. And about 1960, I was out at a coin dealer's kitchen table. He was a kitchen table coin dealer and he had Brian buttons laid on his table. I'd never really quite understood what a political button was before that. I guess I'd seen my share of, I like Ike buttons in the fifties, but they didn't register, but Mr. Brian did. And, and it was so different than a coin, uh, they were both round, but the Brian button was full of color and graphics, and it was warm to the touch. It was covered in celluloid, which is a natural material. And no one knew much about it. My coin albums, they all had little numbers under every coin hole telling you precisely down to the single digit how many of those things existed at one time. But these buttons, these political and other buttons were a total mystery, and and I got captivated. So one thing led to another, from a part-time job, well a collector to a part-time job to a full-time job to, you know, 50 years in the, in the collecting business. But buttons are my number one love. So uh, when Quiskin invited me to join her on her project five years ago, I was ready.
3: Nice. How did the two of you meet? I introduced myself to Ted because, so I have a button manufacturing company, and I started in 1995. And when I was, this is, bef- I was looking up machinery to start, you know, the button company. And this is before this stuff was online. So I'd go to the library, go through the Thomas registry, you know, and uh, go home and call long distance and try to <laughs> find the button machine. So when I was there, I was like, I wonder if there's any books on buttons, you know, it'd be Cool. If there were, and so I found Ted's book, Collectible Pinback Buttons, that he wrote in 1986. It was in the reference section, so I would photocopy a bunch of pages, and I, I kept a lot of those photocopies in like my button like file of like just ideas and stuff. So it was something that I very early on was like, oh, buttons can do a lot more <clears throat> than what I thought that they could, you know, like all these advertising, all these beautiful designs that. I was just floored when I saw <laughs> all the beautiful designs. So this was just in the back of my mind. And then somebody stole the book from the library and I put traces oh, on no. it and never came back. But about 10 years later, I was like, I need to find that book because it had been out of print for a while, right? Like, Yeah, definitely. Mid-aughts. So in the mid-aughts, I found myself a copy. And, uh, and then a couple of years later, I was like, I should just meet this person or talk with this person because at that time, I wanted to start... A button museum which ended up doing a few years later and uh so i was trying to collect for it And like if you could start a button museum you got to talk to ted hake you know you can't, <laughs> it's just there's no way around it <laughs> and so i visited him in york i'm in chicago i visited him in york we went to a collector's show there and uh or nearby and uh, yeah we've just been friends ever since yeah so we we definitely can talk about buttons till like the cows come up. <laughs> <off.
0: laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, one of the things that I really loved about your book is the way that it's formatted and it's structured thematically. You know, there's themes, there's like at the advertising buttons you just mentioned, Kristen, you know, there's campaigns and causes, there's places, there's people. And then within each of those sections, there are literally hundreds of buttons presented visually. So how many uh, buttons are represented in the
2: book in total? I did a quick count. Uh, 1,500 is where we are. Wow,
0: wow. And and uh, what's so fun, and I think this is why I learned so much, is that within those thematic chapters, you've picked very specific buttons and you've written these little vignettes about their meaning or their significance. And, and um, coming back to what I was saying earlier about research, you all did a ton of research and continue to do a ton of research, I'm sure, every time you find a new button to figure out, what it is and why it's important. So how do you go about doing this? And, and I'm, I guess I'm just, as somebody who does a ton of research herself, I I find this really interesting. And I kind of want to know a little bit more
3: about your practice. Yeah, this was a big project because this is really the very, very edited, you know, like Ted and I, Definitely talked about more than 10,000, like discussed individual 10, at least 10,000 buttons, maybe like (laughs) 20,000, but we, we talked, I mean, over the course of our friendship, we've talked about even more, (laughs) but anyhow, uh, so working on this book, we really like, we all, we both have our favorite buttons. We kind of brought them to the table and then we ended up photographing 4,000 buttons for the book. So that was very edited down and then it just kept getting more and more. So you're, you're really seeing, I mean, every button in here is very thoughtfully put in. It's not, it wasn't like, ah, eh, just throw something in there. Yes. It was all, what did you want to add anything to that, Ted?
2: Only how it evolved really. Uh, You know, at one point, we were actually considering buttons A to Z, (laughs) uh, and then then that that evolved into buttons chronologically. Let's start in 1896 and do a year of buttons, and let's do that for 125 years. But uh, our publisher, in their wisdom, said, why don't we do themes? And lo and behold, these many, many buttons all fall into basically 12 thematic categories. But because we had done the year-to-year research, You get the best of both worlds. And our designer, Ben Ben English, did a great job of putting little teeny tiny years by the side of each button. But if you lean back, all you see are wonderful buttons. And if you want to know more, you lean in. And right there is the approximate at least year that it was issued. So it's really, it works on a historical level and it works visually, I think. Uh, So you get two in one.
0: So going back a little bit to your research, like when you find a button and you don't know what it is, how do you go about like sorting that out?
3: There are some mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> we love mysteries on Dressed. I would say, um, well, Ted kind of knows a lot. It didn't mean Ted does know a lot. And so if Ted doesn't know, then it's like newspapers.com or bringing it to the internet. But Ted kind of, it feels like Ted knows like, the stories between be like 90% of these buttons, especially the older buttons.
2: <laughs> I don't know if that many. Yeah. The research was really the fun part of this book.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and I was actually quite taken back about the amount that some of your buttons um, that you feature in the book can go for at auction. You write about one in particular, that's the Franklin D. Roosevelt and James M. Cox button. And um, so what about this button, or these buttons, I should say, are so special, and, and why is the price so extraordinary for collectors?
2: Well, uh, value comes down to three things, supply, demand, and condition. Mm-hmm. And in this particular button, which came out in 1920 with uh, Cox was a governor of Ohio running for president, and FDR uh, was coming off of being Secretary of the Navy during World War One, and he, he got uh, dominated for VP. But the Democrats weren't having a great year. And it, believe it or not, it cost maybe not anymore, but back then it cost more to put two pictures on a button than one. And the Democratic parties across the country failed to order what we call in the hobby Jugates, J U G A T E S. It's Latin and it means side by side pictures. So that there are very few of them around. Uh, in total, there's maybe 50. They're like eight different designs. They come in different sizes. But the uh, the holy grail, the one that if I could get my hands on it and put it in my auction, would probably exceed $100,000. It has to be one and a quarter inch in diameter, and it has to have both of their pictures on it.
0: Yeah, $100,000 for a button. That's pretty amazing. And speaking of the market, do you think that there's certain themes in terms of collectors that do better than others? Like for instance, you have a whole section on the punk movement and how the um, buttons played into punk style. And I was like, oh, I bet some of those go for a pretty penny. Um, So is it just the rarity and the condition factor or do you find that certain themes do better than others?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think political buttons are the most collected buttons and go for the most, but uh, Ted could speak to that more. But uh, the punk buttons... There is like a very active collectors group of that. And uh, there are some really valuable ones, but and you can, that's the great thing about buttons is you could start a collection with very little money. You know, like you could have a button collection for 50 bucks. You could start easily, especially at these some of these shows, there'll be like bowls of dollar <laughs> buttons and they're not that bad. You know, you can get a button from 1896 that's like $2 or something, depending on condition, I guess. But uh, yeah, some of the punk buttons, I think the most I've ever seen, that's not really an area that I know that much about, but I think the most I've ever seen was like around a hundred dollars, but I'm also not as into, like, I don't know value as much as like Ted does or these people who really collect their niche, you know. Mm -hmm. There's
0: this Stunning variety of topics that we see covered by the buttons in your book. What themes or kind of sub-themes can people expect to find in the book?
2: Well, I I guess our 12 main chapters uh, show the overall view, but like within uh, campaigns and causes, we kind of join two right there. But, uh, uh, you know, holidays and uh, events and sports, uh, military things. In terms of what's collected Kristen's right uh, the political stuff is number one if you separate campaigns and causes that's kind of like one and two and big other big categories are advertising Uh, there is a wonderful number of santa claus buttons which the department stores used to give away Uh, and sports is probably right behind the political stuff we just did set a record at auction for the most expensive button uh, it happened to be one picturing Babe Ruth on it and uh, it we just sold it in our last auction for sixty-two thousand dollars.
3: Wow. Wow. Oh, I would say as like underlying like sub themes or you know, just how people use design and messaging to build community mm-hmm. and how that changes over time. And you know, these are mementos too. So it's like, you know, what what makes a memento something that people want, you know? And it's really like, I think people like them because A, they're free, but some of these are just so beautiful and connect people and their memories and stuff.
0: Yeah. Cuts right to the point. At the very end of the book, the two of you select some of your favorite buttons. Uh, So would you tell us about some of your, 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 your fave
3: picks? Yeah, I mean, for your podcast, I I just wanted to talk about the Lamb for Hat button because it's such a cool button, super simple design. It's just brown and an opaque white, but it has a die-cut hat shape in it and then the felt from the hat underneath it. So you can actually feel the felt of the hat on on the button. So it's like tactile. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. I just love that button. That was a gift from Ted years ago, but... um, Yeah. I think it's like, it's almost a perfect button design wise. (laughs) I really like it. And then that's, that's one of my favorites. And Snoopy is my very first button Snoopy and Woodstock. So I really like that one because it just meant so much to me. I was 12 years old and I was like Snoopy Woodstock and I are going to walk around, you know, like we're together. (laughs) And uh, the design is just so sweet. Nice. What about
2: you, Ted? Oh boy. Well, there's a uh, a beautiful button uh made for a an event in 1908 called the Long Beach Festival of the Sea and it has a lovely mermaid kind of floating and sticking up out of the water and her hair is all tasseled and and down below in little sea snake writing it's you know says Festival of the Sea And I've loved that button ever since the day I saw it in in the first major collection I ever bought back in the 70s, the Joe Stone collection, that's where the button came from. Don't know how Joe got it, he lived in Toledo, Ohio, but he traded with people. And uh, this whole thing was, I never knew what it was about. Uh, You have to remember, I started before the days of the internet and I built up a massive reference library to research the items I was handling for my pop culture auctions. But I never got to the level of figuring out what happened at the Festival of the Sea until I did this book. And again, with newspapers.com is a wonderful resource that you just step back in time. And there, lo and behold, is a wonderful detailed uh, explanation of what this was all about. And they actually did have the visual effect of a platform coming up out of the ocean, lit by lights and palms and everything. And the mermaid eventually turns into the queen of the carnival, so to speak. But it's a gorgeous button, and I guess that's my number one.
0: That's so nice. So, Kristen, you mentioned this briefly already. Uh, Would you tell us a little bit about the Button Museum, which you started?
3: Yeah, I mean, the Button Museum is, I want to try to tell American history as best we can with buttons. So there's about 40,000 buttons in that collection. It's not, we have some buttons that are some Are kind of valuable but it's not really based on value as much as trying to tell kind of like a zeitgeist and also catching big moments in history and small moments in history so and like how people celebrated family reunions 100 years ago or you know weddings 40 years ago whatever so that is such a fun project because you, you know, you put this stuff out into the world and you don't know what's going to come back. Like that Cesar Chavez story, that kid who designed that. And there's a lot of people who've reached out and said, hey, I designed that button and told us the backstory. And then also we get, a lot of people donate their collections. So we'll get people, and we get to hear their stories. You know, like there was a guy in Seattle who collected these like super fast boats. And he told us his whole story about, all the races that he was part of. And then there was a a nun who was like a social justice, like very active in protesting and protesting and in Detroit. And we got her collection from the 60s to the 90s. And it was just like things that she was working towards, like for those 30 years. So, I mean, in the, you know, that's such a huge honor to get to house like somebody's collection like that.
0: And it's open to the public?
3: It is. I mean, right now we're not, but until... Um, you know, maybe next year, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we're online at buttonmuseum.org. And online, we have about 8,000 uploaded. So it's a, it'll take some time to get through that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, I mean, I spent so much time on there already just looking. <laughs>
3: nice. I was like, at
0: some point, I was like, okay, I have to move on and do some other work. But but it's definitely our rabbit holes, as we frequently say on the podcast.
3: Yeah, we have a librarian that archives everything, and she uh, has a bunch of interns every semester. So she uh, she's the one who really makes it all happen. You know, we have a system now, and she does it. That's amazing.
0: And Ted, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your career working in auctions? Because you are also a button dealer, but you deal in other collectible items as well. Yes.
2: Yeah. It uh, like I say, I, I found buttons uh, in 1960. Then I was off to the University of Pittsburgh, and I was collecting buttons then. I'd never joined the main hobby group because I was back and forth in my addresses, but I became a I became a little part-time job. I had a mentor here in York who I would buy things from and who educated me, and then I would go to Pittsburgh, and I found a coin dealer downtown who wanted to buy campaign items, so that was a marriage made in heaven, so to speak, and one thing led to another. I repeated that little scenario when I went to NYU grad school. I worked at the World's Fair at Progress Land, and then I stayed and, and went to grad school at NYU. And I had a coin dealer in Manhattan, but one day I came out of his store after selling my wares and it was laying on the counter and these New York bankers and stockbrokers would come in and say, hey, hey, Milt, how much is the old landing button laying there? And Milt would say, oh, 22 And I just got done selling it for $8. And I thought, <gasps> well, can I take a look at the way, way this business is being conducted. So I, I came down on the retail side. I took the subway back to my little Adobe in Jackson Heights. And I, I got 11 pieces of carbon paper and 12 pieces of white paper. There were no Xerox machines. And I pounded out my first... Sales list, <laughs> and from the I was now a member of the APIC, APIC US. By the way, if you want to join or find out about it, and they had a roster, so I found twelve people by you know chance sent out my list, and I had an eighty percent sell rate. Wow. That pretty much sold me on being a, a retailer instead of a wholesaler. It was a few years later till I created Hakes Auctions, but uh, it was about a two or three year journeyman apprenticeship in there where I was, you know, partly working and partly doing this. And then I finally made the full-time break about 1971.
0: Mm. And um, would you tell our listeners a little bit, what is APIC?
2: Uh, It stands for American Political Items Collectors. Uh, However, thanks to Kristen, we have a popular culture chapter as well. There are different chapters specializing in different things, be it a specific president or something like civil rights or World War II. And we have meetings all across the country in these chapters. We're a little bit on hold, but we did just have one in Canton, Ohio, safely distanced and masked. And we have a big national convention coming up in Nashville next summer. Uh, So it's a great organization. There are publications that you get when you join and a great fraternity for button collectors. And it takes in all kinds of buttons, not just campaigns.
0: So this question to both of you, uh, if people want to find you, um, and they want to reach out, uh, what's the best way to contact you?
3: For me, it's through Busy Beaver Button Company. So busybeaver.net, where that's the manufacturing part of buttons in my world. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and what about you, Ted? Well, I wear two hats. The, the company I founded, which I don't own, but I'm still gainfully employed in, is uh, Hake's.com. But my personal website is Ted Hake. Com.
0: And lots and lots of buttons you'll find there, yes?
2: On both of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today on Dress. This was really fun. I'm going to recommend to our listeners that they grab a copy of your book. Check out the Button Museum website. I mean, again, total rabbit hole. You could literally spend hours and hours and hours just combing through all these beautiful, beautiful buttons. So thank you, too, for joining us, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, April. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much, April.
0: Kristen and Ted,
1: thank you for your delight of a book. April, while Ted and Kristen told us about some of their favorite buttons included in the book, well, I was hoping we actually, you and I might be able to chat about some of our own favorites.
0: Yes. And you definitely do not have to twist my arm on this. I was actually hoping that you would suggest this. So (laughs) I am prepared.
1: Well, I mean, where do we start with approximately 1500 buttons to choose from? This is probably, you know, not the easiest task. Um, but it's equally pleasurable. Um, more than a few of the buttons in this book have ties to fashion, and our regular listeners may remember our episode that we did on the history of Mary Jane shoes and their connection to the popular Buster Brown comic strip, which debuted in 1902. In 1904, the Buster Brown Shoe Company was formed, which sold children's shoes similar to the style seen in the comic strip. So I was delighted to discover a Buster Brown Shoes button from 1915 in the book, it features Buster's face winking at you alongside his dog, Teague. And it's just pretty adorable.
0: Yeah. Or how about from that exact same year, 1915, the Midnight at Maxime's button, which is in all black and white. And it features a showgirl in a costume with these really kind of like wide, fluffy bouffant skirts, which hit well above the knee. And what appear <laughs> to be, Cass, completely naked legs. Oh, no. Oh, shocking. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so she doesn't appear to have on any stockings that I can tell, which would have been quite scintillating in the day. And speaking of
1: showgirls, how about the button promoting Maritona, the snake handler from around 1910, this button remains a bit of a mystery actually to both Kristen and Ted. So perhaps some of our listeners might know about Maritona. If you do, please reach out to us. And this also reminds me that I've promised to do a showgirl episode, so maybe season yes, 4.
0: Season 4, lots to say about the showgirls. Some of my favorite buttons in the bookcast are actually kind of like downright silly or confusing or confounding. One button, pray for Rosemary's baby. Oh, yeah. Super fun. I got a good (laughs) chuckle out of that one. Um, And then we also have all these buttons that don't really make any sense or like perhaps I should have delved a little bit further into your history (laughs) to kind of figure it out. But the, the one that really, really struck me was a button with a photo of Sammy Davis Jr. on it. And then right next to that by his head, it has the GE logo, like as in General Electric. And then the text on it says... Can you dig it? So I'm like, dig what? <laughs> what does Sammy Davis Jr. have to do with GE? Like, dig electricity? Yeah. Dig the power grid? I don't know. I don't know what this is all about, but I was, I was very confused. <laughs> So
1: what's so interesting about material culture, too, when you take it out of its context, like the meaning that it holds is lost until you kind of delve into its history a little bit more. Maybe our listeners will write to us about that button as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how about that button from 1965, which features the 10-gallon hat logo for Arby's, which says Arby's roast beef inside the hat and then also has the Life magazine logo beneath it. What is that about? There's
0: no explanation. <laughs> It's just that. It's just those two things. I don't know what that's about. But what I do know is that it was apparently a very effective advertising tactic because it really made me want an Arby's roast beef sandwich. And as you know, Cass, I do not eat fast food. Um, But I will fess up that every five years or so, kind (laughs) of need an Arby's roast beef sandwich and curly fries because their curly fries are the best but it's very weird because in New York City we don't have a lot of Arby's we didn't have any Arby's up until a few years ago so this is kind of like like a highly unusual road trip treat when I happen (laughs) to be in a car going somewhere else (gasps)
1: Every five years, special treat. Yeah. (laughs) And speaking of food and beverage, how about the 1967 Button draft beer, not boys, which is, of course, speaking against the draft during the Vietnam War?
0: Yeah, and, and so many of the buttons in the book are political in nature, as we have already kind of discussed earlier, but but bringing this around to a personal note, as some of you might remember, I've mentioned on the show that I'm from Kansas City, and there was actually a, a button from Kansas City. It was the Kansas Carnival Crew, which was all spelled with Ks, and this was from 1898, and... Aside from that text, it has a face of a jester, like a court jester on it, and it's surrounded by three Ks. So I was just like, oh, that was presumably a KKK button. So clearly not Kansas City's finest moment. Yeah, and of course, there's other plenty of other buttons that document
1: the civil rights and Black power movements moving forward in history. April, I think one of both of our favorites in the book is this orange button for Angela Davis Day, which features a picture of Angela Davis, the civil rights activist, And it says, Free Angela, Bail Now, Central Park, September 20th, 1971.
0: Yeah, and what I think was so interesting about that is that in the context of civil rights and um, Black Lives Matter, that is the, the subject of bail is still a discussion that we have been having this year, 50 years later. So there's this vast territory of culture that is documented by way of these pinback buttons. And we cannot recommend this book enough. It's one that you will definitely return to again and again, just to like flip through the pages and look at all the incredibly beautiful buttons. You can also jump online and check out Kristen's online presence for the Button Museum at buttonmuseum.org. And once normal operations resume after the pandemic, you can visit the Button Museum in person if you're in charge. Chicago. If you are a collector or caught
1: the collecting bug by way of this episode, you can also check out a ton of amazing buttons for sale at Ted's site, tedhake, H A K E dot com, or hakes dot com.
0: Yes. And I am hoping to, I've been kind of like playing around on there, keeping an eye on their suffrage buttons offerings, Cass, because a couple of years ago, I bought this really awesome leather motorcycle jacket, which is completely upcycled from all these other leather jackets. And it's a Swedish company called Deadwood that that does this. um, and, And because of their upcycling other jackets, it's almost like almost all of them are unique because they have to have the different piecing and different pieces of leather. But I've also been collecting pins and buttons and adding them along that belt strap of my motorcycle jacket. So that's been very fun. I already have one suffrage button, which Rice of Britannia gave me, um, but I'm looking to add another one or, or several more to my jacket. That's
1: wonderful. I'm actually trying to get my nephew into the value of collecting buttons and like personalizing your own jacket. So, yes. So much to be said for you know the power of dress and embodiment when you can add those sort of personal touches to things that you own. It really means a lot. And that does it for us, this week dress listeners. May you consider the role of the button in your activism next time you get dressed. Please join us this coming Thursday for our mini sewed where we either answer your listener questions or keep you up to date on all the latest in the field of fashion history. We love hearing from you. So please write to us with your fashion history mystery queries at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast.
0: And that's where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
3: or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Also, please go vote.